When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This episode of See Here is dedicated to the memory of Corey Smoot and Dave Brocky in Valhalla, where the gods belong. Hail Bar. <laughs> Welcome to episode 91 of the See Here podcast. We're also part of the Pantheon Network of Music Discussion Podcasts. Please go to pantheonpodcasts.com and uh, search out any of the other wonderful music discussion podcasts. Our gratitude to them for putting up with us. Morris here in Melbourne and over in Brantford, Ontario. My learned colleague and friend, Mr. Tim Merrill. Now, normally I'd be introducing our other learned friend and colleague over in Bath in England, Mr. Bernard Stickwell, but apparently he had to take this episode off because he's going for a costume fitting for a Guar tribute band. He's going as Bernardus Maximus. So in his stead... We have got a guar expert, and I'll tell you why we have a guar expert in a moment, but I'd like to welcome to the microphone Mr. Jason Skitch. Hello, I am Jason Skitch. I've been a lifelong guar fan, a personal friend of Tim since my teenage years. Grew up going to guar shows, uh, bonded with my dad over guar, and went to see guar last week with my wife of 20 years. Wow, your dad and your wife. That's a generational thing. You're taking your kids? <laughs> they won't go with me. Ah. <laughs> guar brings families together. <laughs> <laughs> so the reason why we are brought on a guar expert is because this time around you're going to be hearing an interview we've just actually just recorded it the director of a fantastic new documentary called this is guar did I do it right, Tim? Uh, for uh, for those of you less inclined, it's called This Is Guar. And it's a documentary, funnily enough, about not just a band, more an arts collective. And we speak about that in the interview called Guar. They've been around for like 30 years or 35 years or something like that. And this documentary, within two hours, I mean, how much can you say? But really, Scott has done a fantastic job on not just talking about a band and not just talking about their personal struggles, but just it's a cultural phenomenon. There's social 
satire. There's so much in this film and Scott will talk at the end of the interview about how it is that you can get to see it. But this film absolutely fascinated me. Unlike Tim and Jason, I was not a Guar fan and I speak in the interview about the only other time where I'd actually heard of them. But as we're always saying on this show, a great documentary is a great documentary and this film is absolutely fascinating. I really look forward to seeing it again uh, and maybe delving into Guar's music separately. But anyway, what we're going to do, we don't actually have a trailer for this, so we'll play you a little bit of audio from one of Guar's own productions. They're also filmmakers. They do everything. Fantastic. So I'll play a little bit of that and then we'll be back to talk with Scott Barber about his film This Is Guar, or sorry, This Is Guar. And then we'll be back at the end of the show to talk about what will be happening with next month's episode, See Here 92. It'll be eight years since we started. Good Lord. We'll be back in a moment with Scott Barber. Stay tuned, filthy humans. Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Sleazy P. Martini, entrepreneur extraordinaire and discoverer of the most amazing cataclysmic rock and roll event of the century. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Guaha. <laughs> I am this executioner. I am Beefcake the Mighty, and I come in peace. I am Flatus Maximus. I play guitar. And I am Simenstra Hyman, and I have come to this planet to love you all to death. My name is Balzac, the Jaws of Death. That's B A L. S-A-C With umblots over the A's I play guitar It also acts as the mouthpiece for the band You dare to address me without groveling on your hands and knees And ritually disemboweling yourself first? Down, human! Kill yourself! Don't kill him yet, we need the publicity! Oh, that's right If you are doing this... You are probably already dead by now. Welcome back to episode 91 of See Here Podcast. And we're very, very excited. We have on the line with us speaking. I'm not sure where you are, actually, Scott. You're, you're somewhere in America. Anyway, we have on a Skype call the director of the new documentary, This Is Guar, Mr. Scott Barber. Welcome to See Here, Scott. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate you. I'm down here in the Lone Star State, Tejas, quite a ways from all three of you quite far from uh, Antarctica. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I should have said that's where you're from. My my lord. Uh, look, congratulations on the release of the excellent new documentary This Is Guar. Oh, sorry. This Is Guar. As we were speaking before we started recording this, I'm the Guar Virgin. Tim and Skitch uh, both the Guar experts. Listeners, you can't imagine the look on Skitch's face at the moment. He's, <laughs> he, can't, he can't believe it that there is a Guar Virgin out there. But yes, I am that. But I have to say that even for me, as someone who wasn't really knowledgeable about their music came in completely cold i really really love this film so congratulations on what you've done here now this is obviously not the first band to contain uh, satire and theatrical rock and shock rock i mean one of my all-time favorite bands is the tubes i always thought that they were pretty outrageous but 
not in the Guar League in that regard. And I'm going to presume that we might have a few listeners out there, a small number of listeners who may not know who Guar is. Tell us a little bit about Guar for the other virgins out there. Okay, yeah, for for people, which by the way, thank you so much for having me. And thank you for the kind words on the documentary. That means a lot to me because that was uh, the way that I presented it to the band. And what I always wanted to do was I wanted to make a documentary that Guar fans would appreciate and that did the band justice, but also something that people who had never heard of Guar would enjoy because I always felt that their story was bigger than rock and roll, heavy metal, anything like that. It's something that even if your favorite musical artist is Garth Brooks, <laughs> you could get into this because it's just a it's just a beautiful story. You know, friendship, betrayal, perseverance, yeah. loss. It's something that we all can identify with. But now to answer your question, at first glance, what Guar is, uh, is a band full of barbarians from outer space who are stranded here on Earth and hate it. And they play heavy metal metal music and they're these monsters that will cut people's heads off and spray blood all over the audience they'll cut people's arms and limbs all sorts of stuff they'll cut it off they'll spray you with blood with mucus with every bodily fluid you can imagine and you're going to see more than just a concert you're also going to see a stage show that is very offensive but very awesome and it's going to be an experience unlike anything you've ever had before at any concert a little bit like a combination of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Jesus Christ Superstar. <laughs> yeah, that's perfect. That's perfect. You know, it's a, it's a, you know, the musical element, you know, it's all like a stage presentation, like Scott's saying. This is the thing, too. You know, everybody always says, oh, yeah, there ought to be a warning with Guar. And I'm like, no, there shouldn't be a warning with Guar because if you get one look at these guys, you know, you're not going to see the fucking Osmonds. You know what Very I mean? Very true. What you see is what you get, and then some. How did you approach, or did you approach the band to document them? Did you have to go to Antarctica? How did, how did, <laughs> did you approach them, or did they say, hey, we've heard of you, we'd like you to tell our story? How did that happen? I kind of keep a notebook of different things. If something pops into my head, oh, that'd make a cool doc idea. That'd be cool. That's what I do first, and then when I have some time, I'll do a little bit of light research and call those ideas. Some things are neat ideas, but there's no story there. There's not enough story to make up a compelling movie. Because if it's just the history of something and there's no real conflict or nothing interesting, nobody wants to see that. And so Guar, I did some research and I found out they were a movie and a punk band that came together and they're not even a band. They're actually an art collective and half of the people in the band don't play instruments. I said, okay, that's an interesting idea. And then, you know, like Tim had mentioned, you know, the, the passing of Corey and the passing of Dave and the these insane things that happened to these people that they persevered through. I said, this, right. there's a there's a story there. And so they made it to my next <laughs> round of things that I thought would be cool. And then it was, can I get a hold of them? And uh, some serendipity happened there. And one of my dear friends, his name is Rocky Moon. He plays in a fantastic band called the American Sharks. They're awesome. They opened up for Guar on tour. And so I pitched the idea. I said, hey, can you pitch me to them? <laughs> Can you hook me up with Guar and see if maybe they would be interested in having me do a documentary? I've done one before. It was somewhat successful. I know what I'm doing. So he pitched me to them. I presented what I wanted to do to them. I kind of did some work. Guar had, has had many people approach them to do a yeah. documentary. And everyone just kind of wants to point a camera.
camera at him and go, be guar, be crazy, be cool. But they wanted to make sure it was someone who would put in the work. So I proved myself to them. I did like a little short five minute documentary to show them my vision and they liked it. And then we did the doc. For so long, they presented themselves, even in the media, as this band that were from Antarctica. They lived the fiction, but they could speak their mind through their fiction, through Odorous Arungus, through Beefcake the Mighty, all these characters. So I find it interesting that in your film, it's Brad Roberts talking. It's the people as themselves stripped back. Is right. that something that they said right from the outset? Or maybe was that the approach that these other documentarians, potential documentarians wanted to take was, no, just be the characters. And they all along, they said, no, we want to do this as ourselves. Did they tell you their vision? You know, that's something that's very new, that they were open to being interviewed as themselves. Because Guar for years would only be interviewed as their character. You know, whenever the Grammys, <laughs> you'll see it in the doc, but right. uh, spoiler, they get nominated for a freaking Grammy, Guar, and they got interviewed in character, which in character, they're these space barbarians that hate Earth. They despise it. They wish they could kill every person on Earth. And so, of course, they were like, we don't give a crap about a Grammy. We want to kill you guys. And the Grammys were very offended. But it's like, hey, that's just who we are. We're in character but yeah it's something that they've just recently started doing so i wanted to take advantage of that and now that they i saw that they were open to it let's do this because it never had really been done before there had been a you could find a few interviews here and there where they were talking about it and i wanted to jump in there and let's do this and because it was new and it was special well it's an interesting thing you know about this the documentary to me is that when i had an opportunity to talk to mike bishop mike was saying that they really thought that it was really difficult to do a complete, thorough, definitive documentary on Guar because he said, we were looking at, get, you know, hooking up with Ken Burns because he was like, you know, there's so much to us. Like, it's it's just so vast, the whole history of Guar and everybody's got an individual story. And he said, and it would probably be really long and really boring, right? Because, you know, it's like everybody's take on it. But the thing that with your documentary, Scott, that really hit me was you nailed the emotion of the fraternity the brotherhood, you know, like you mentioned, the perseverance, and we talked about that before, and the fact of it rolls on no matter what. And that's the thing that I love about Guar. And in the story, you know, you've got these two kind of opposing figureheads that are butting heads. But then you stop and realize, like I said to Mike, and he agreed with me, I said, they're a collective. They weren't just two fingers on a hand. It was a hand. Guar is a hand. They're not just two fingers. Because you know, there's been moments in the band where those two guys weren't even in the band anymore and the band was still rolling on and being successful. So, I mean, that's an important thing to note to me was that it was everyone together. It's not just the Dave Brocky show or the Hunter Jackson show. And I think you nailed that for the, all the emotion in it. 
thank you. And that's something that we want to show, you know, in the doc is, yes, Hunter Jackson and Dave Brocky were essentially the creators of Guar. Dave had this crazy punk band where he was outlandish and would do all this crazy stuff. Hunter was making a movie and they came together. Mm-hmm. But, you know, then you have somebody like Don Draculich, who yep. most people know him as Sleazy P. Martini, Guar's manager with the huge pompadour. Uh, you know, I mean, he's every bit as much a, of an integral yep. figure as they are because he was the one that said, one, let's spew blood, which, I mean, come on, that's the main thing you think of Guar. And he was right. also the person that said, hey, let's make it latex instead right. of they were using paper mache at the time. That's so true. come on, that guy might as well have created Guar as well. Right. And, you know, the, the musicians that were like, hey, we need to actually make good music because no one will pay attention if we're not good. They were every bit as responsible. And I was going to say, and you can't forget Danielle. I mean, come on. Yeah, Danielle. I mean, because she she danced with fire. Right. <laughs> so, you know, that brought an element of real danger. And for those right. that don't know, Danielle Stamp played a character named Slyminstra Hyman, who right. squirt blood in a more feminine way all over the audience. Right. Uh, uh, that uh, is amazing. And, with uh, the giant pads. Yes. With the nunchuck tampon. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been hit in the face with that before. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> oh, my God. Back yeah. before there was a space between the stage and the barrier, you could go right to the stage and Guar would hit you with stuff all the time. Oh, yeah. Well, it was funny because like we were talking about this last night, Sketch and I, and I was saying that uh, I had a chance years ago to talk with Chuck Varga. And Chuck was saying, you know, that being in Guar was almost like being an NFL team where you had to suit up and then you get on stage and then you had to basically do traffic control because there was no security. There was no barrier between the fans and the stage. The fans were right against the stage and half the time Chuck's trying to wobble around and whack people to keep them off the stage and grabbing props and grabbing characters and shit and he just said I don't know how I balanced it he said between watching everybody not tripping over blood hoses and meanwhile you're constantly moving for like 90 minutes and he said even though it's rubber it's heavy and he said, so you're doing all of this and it's just like a balancing act, you know, it's like being at the circus on acid. I can attest to that back in the old days, being up to the stage, trying to climb the stack so you can crowd surf back then. I got one hand on the stage, one hand on a speaker and I'm looking up, a big foam rubber foot comes down on my hand and executioner Chuck has the sledgehammer and like a golf club, he right off the side of the stage, he knocked me into the crowd. <laughs> I was one of those idiots trying to climb up and, but again, we have that barrier in that space now, so it's not the way it was no and i mean going back to like what what was the first time you saw guar scott I had seen him once years ago, and I thought it was awesome. <laughs> you know, right, uh, right. You know, I feel like if anybody, if you're into rock, you kind of know about Guar. I, I kind of say they're kind of like the Misfits or Motorhead, in that those are bands that anybody likes. Right. Like, whether you're really into punk, really into metal, or really right. into just rock and roll, if you're into rock, you think Guar is kind of cool. And that's right. how I always was. I I always admired them and thought they were awesome, but I was never like a hardcore yeah. uh, Guar fan. I certainly am now. My first experience, like a lot of people, was Beavis and Butthead. Yeah, yeah, Gwar! Yeah, 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 all right. Yeah, yeah. Whoa, Gwar has horns now? Yeah, they taught the sex slaves to play horns. Yeah. <laughs> it's like Balsack told him, throwing blood and urine in the audience isn't enough. You guys need to learn to play something. Yeah, yeah, really. 
know, that's right. where I saw them and was like, oh, I got to get into that. Uh, you know? Wow. No, back in the zine era, it was weird because there's a skate magazine called Thrasher. And Thrasher actually used to do a lot of music coverage and, you know, and a lot of punk, a lot of just stuff that was left to center. And I remember picking up a copy of Thrasher at a local smoke shop in town, the tobacco shop, and looking and I seen these pictures of these guys going, what the hell is this? Right. And this is about maybe like 88. I think. Wow. Around there. We were outside of Toronto about two hours. So every Thursday there would be a magazine that would come out now magazine, like a free local Toronto what's on for the week. And I remember seeing this club, the diamond club presents Guar from Richmond, Virginia. And I'm just like, wait, matching the two. Oh my God. Is that I'm going, I'm going, I'm going. So me and my buddy got the train and we went into Toronto and we had no idea what was going to happen. <laughs> and, you know, we just knew they were in costume and then, you know, they come late and then I see these guys going up on stage and they're setting up a wrestling ring. They're actually drilling ring posts into the stage and then they're setting up these cords and I'm going, wait a minute. And then the next thing you know, there's dry ice and then it just happens. And I'm just like looking at everybody else around me like, are you fucking seeing what I'm fucking seeing? Like, what the hell is this shit? And then the blood starts and then and then it was just right there and then it was just like, oh my God, this isn't happening, but it is happening. That was it. And then right for then, that that was when Hello came out. Wow. And then when I got back on the bus the next day, I had to go to work and I look like basically like six shades of grape Kool-Aid. And, you know, and I'm trying to scrub this off my face while I'm working, you know, at a uh, community center for the disabled. And uh, yeah, that was it, man. Like from there, I was just like, I'm sold. And then when the Hello VHS came out, I grabbed that. And then there was a huge jump for Guar to me between Hello and Scum Dogs. I mean, the Scum Dogs tour, man, they pulled out everything. I went with you on that one. Yeah. I didn't see the Hello Tour, but Scumdog no. was my first live show and you mentioned washing that off. Whatever they used back then, you had to grind it off. You can't wash that off. You had to wear it off over weeks. Yeah. You could scrub five showers and you go to school looking like you got beat by seven people and yep. everybody's like, what happened to you? I'm like, I just went to a concert. Yeah. But it <laughs> but, didn't come off back then. But but Scumdog was a great tour though. Scumdogs was amazing because they actually used a, a video screen above the stage where they did narration and they did these little short films that they were showing and then going to the live thing and then going back to the, the video screen and then the live thing and they pulled out Granbow and Private Parts and Gorgor and it was just everything, right? But again, the show had to roll on and roll on and roll on. And I mentioned something to Mike that was incredible. There was one time we saw Guar at the warehouse in Toronto where Air Canada had lost Dave's costume. <laughs> yes, I was so, there. <laughs> so the ex-cops opened up, which is basically Guar dressed up as cops. They come out and then Dave came out on stage and he says, hey, I, I'm Dave Brocky, Odorous's butt boy, you know, uh, his human representative. And they lost my fucking costume. He says, so do you guys either want to refund or want me to do the show? So then... And then all the rest of Guar is looking at Dave like, pity human, you think you could rock with us? Well, you're out of your fucking mind. You can't do this. He goes, well, let me try. All right. But if you don't, we'll slaughter you. So he went off and Dave did it sans costume. He was wearing just one of those giant foam dicks and nothing else. Yeah. It was covering his whole crotch, just a giant dick, completely naked. And yep. I remember halfway through the show, it just fell off. He just kept playing. He didn't care. The point is, is that, you know, it rolls on, you know, this regardless, right? Like he had that kind of damn the torpedoes attitude about him. You know, and the Guar guys told me many stories like that where, you know, essentially what they're doing is 
they're putting on a little play. Mm-hmm. But, you know, a lot of a play is in one place. They're taking a whole theatrical st- stage show with different characters and different costumes and different props to a different city every single night. So something's going to go wrong. And, you know, they, they talk about stuff like that or where they had to kind of like one time the, the blood tanks didn't work. So they just filled up blood with buckets and are just throwing them out there because, <laughs> this, like you said, the show must go on. And that's one thing that I think is fascinating about those guys. I, Your main character doesn't have his costume that's something that most people would just crater but they went on and a matter of fact they're on tour right now their bass player got COVID uh, and and, and he had to drop off immediately and so the guitar player was like screw it Casey the bass player beefcake played a show and literally the next night by the next show Ballsack the Jaws of Death had learned the bass parts I mean that's crazy also a big thing on their tour now is Hunter Jackson he's back so he's kind of like the central character or one of the him coming back as a central part of the new show he got sick he got COVID so the other guys had to learn his parts I mean those guys are insanely talented and and, and they just roll with the punches like nobody else I hear rumor that Blothar knows a little bit about how to play the bass is that not yeah. I saw a couple of pictures of Blothar from like last week playing the bass. I believe yeah. Blothar, Pustulus, and Ballsack Everybody. all took turns playing bass uh, right. until they could get another beefcake in there. Uh, I saw them last Tuesday on their show in Toronto, and to replace Hunter, they had Sawborg Destructo did the exact same part. Yes, exactly. Right. Yeah, so he had to figure that out like instantaneously. Yeah, the right. next day, like you're off today. Tomorrow, somebody else has to play your part. One thing that totally pisses me off is when all these people talk about Gorg as being a shtick band, and I'm just like, look, I said in the documentary, they're talking about one tour where they go out for three consecutive months. Now, any other band that just says, "Oh man, life on the road is hard," you know, getting <laughs> on stage every night, you know, in the groupies and blah blah. Sound check. I mean, imagine having to gear up the way Guar does for three consecutive months, every single night being doused on, pissed yeah. on, blood. I mean, just the whole thing. And just for the love of it, man. Like, you know, yeah. it, ain't, it ain't for wimps. I don't see a lot of other people being able to do what they do. People can talk the talk, but you can't do that. You can say all day, the blood is a gimmick. It's, it's not real blood, blah, blah, blah. But being together for 30 years, like you said, going on tour for three months, which by the way, they still do. That's what they're doing right now. They went on tour in early October, and they're not going to be done until the end of the year. They're going on tour still to this very day. That's not a gimmick. There's no way you can say that's a gimmick. And another thing is they get there at 10 in the morning. Most bands, like you said, they get there, you know, you sound check at, you know, whatever, five or six. Mm -hmm. So you can sleep all day. Those guys have to get there at 10. They get to the venue at 10 in the morning because the first thing they do is they have to protect the venue. So they got to put they got to put carpet on the stage, their own carpet. They put that down so they don't run the stage. They have to put plastic over all the speakers and monitors so they don't squirt blood and ruin the venue's monitors. And then they have to put their own stuff on there. You know, they put the meat grinder and the drum riser and all the everything up there. So those guys are working hard at 10 in the morning and then they get done at, you know, one in the morning, get a little bit of sleep and do it again, like you said, for three months. And, you know, I have a little bit of experience with rock and roll. I played in some bands and I have a lot of friends that were in bigger bands. I tell you, a lot of times whenever a band gets one song on the radio, they start to get a little bit of a, where are my loaders? Load in my stuff for me. <laughs> Set up my amp for me. Tune yeah. my guitar for me. You call it, this a deli tray? Yeah. You, yeah. you get that, like, 
you get that pretty quick. You know, I remember yeah, yeah. The, the biggest I ever got was I was at the point where I would open for bands like that, you know, that had right. one, two songs on the radio. Right. And I realized how incredibly quick it is for people to become absolute divas. And, you know, you see Mike Dirks, who he's ball sacked the jaws of death. You know, he's maybe the most iconic character in that band. He's done all this amazing yeah. stuff. He's been in the band for 30 years. And to see that dude get up and he sets his own amp up. I mean, it sounds like it's not that big of a deal, but for that dude to have zero ego whenever he's possibly one of the greatest rhythm guitar players of all time, you know, outside of like Angus Young, you know, he's one of the greatest rhythm guitarists out there. And he's been doing it for 30 years. And that guy's got, none of those guys have an ego. That's probably right. why they're still in Guar. <laughs> I think those are the guys that made it. You have to have no ego. Yeah, but it's kind of funny though, because it's like, you know, it's almost like they didn't need ego when they had Dave and Hunter. <laughs> yeah. And that was the thing is, I mean, as much as they love Dave Brocky and they thought the stuff Hunter did was amazing. Mike says, even in the documentary, he says that Dave wasn't the most, I'm trying to remember how to phrase it. He says generous performer. <laughs> generous performer, right. Because, you know, like when they go on the Joan Rivers show and, and Dave just turns it on and he just doesn't know how to turn it off. You throw d d dismembered limbs in theory, right? This, this all goes on during the concerts. Right. Yeah. What, what is your philosophy behind all this? Well, basically, we view the human race as scum. We are indeed from another planet, you know, and human beings we see as food, dogs so much, to be destroyed on stage, en masse. Right. Yes. They do not uh, dislike this, rather they throw themselves gleefully into the jaws of death. Yes, yes. That's right. It, it's sort of a uh, microcosm of the entire human condition, if you will. Indeed. Yeah. I don't what the hell you're talking about. Let me... <laughs> Now, here's the thing that Mike and I were talking about that was really interesting. I was looking back at guys from the 60s, like Soupy Sales, Charles Nelson Riley, you know, those kind of guys that were like, you know, like that kind of, that was Dave to me. I think a lot of people didn't get that, that he had an old school vaudevillian kind of thing to him where, you know, he could sit there and sing like Cabaret, like Joel Gray and just come out with it, you know, on the spot, like the stuff that he did spontaneously was almost like Python-esque. And if, what's really interesting too, going back to what you were talking about with Dawn, with the spraying of the blood, there's one referential film that I said to Morris where I could see a light bulb going off in the heads of Guar before they even began, and that is Monty Python and the Holy Grail with the Black Knight. Right, I'll do you for that. You what? Come here. What are you gonna do, bleed on me? I'm invincible! You know, with all the limbs and everything, like, I could see them just going, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. What they do, and this isn't a slight to them at all, what they've done is nothing new. It's just messier. 
And what I mean by that is when you go back in the history and you look at like way, way back, like Punch and Judy, like the puppet shows where, you know, the guy's going around with a stick, hitting a woman with a stick. These puppets are killing a baby or the Grand Guignol in France or even, you know, in, in Europe, how they used to burn uh, straw effigies of political figures. I mean, like there, you know, there's always been this history of debasing and this kind of gallows humor. So what they're, the what they're doing. Yeah, the wicker man. Right. Exactly. So what they're doing is nothing new it's just messier and i mean it's a long tradition of a combination of that to me jack kirby's comics and by the way not to get off tangent i want to say to you right now with the film one thing i love that you did with all the titles that was so kirby-esque where in between that was fantastic i thought that would that was dead on and another thing i think that is really important for guar that a lot of people don't realize is i think they were totally influenced by uh the brothers croft uh sid and marty croft with hr puff and stuff and i mean all of that you know to me i i saw that too in the beginning of guar it wasn't just the gore it wasn't just the the grotesquerie or the the obsceneness of it all i just went wait a minute man this is like puffing stuff on crystal meth. That's a great point. Yeah, it, it is. It's like Guar is this complicated thing, but actually they've tapped into something very simple that's always right. been there. Entertain right. people, give people what they want. It's funny because there is, before I knew Hunter, one of the fathers of Guar, I was doing some research on him and I saw pictures of him at a like HR Puffin stuff exhibit thing where he was like, huh. I, I, think, I think he, or not, I'm, it wasn't specifically HR Puffin stuff. It was Sid and Marty Croft and I think he was meeting them. And I was like, huh. And I had the same <laughs> thought. I said, I can see that. Yeah, yeah. And to your point about the Jack Kirby stuff we use in the doc, thanks for mentioning that. And that was something that uh, was really fortunate. You know, when you're doing a doc, we were fortunate to have a lot of archival footage. So when people talk about something, we have footage to show it. There's some things that nobody was filming. For example, there's a really crazy part where one of the guys gets shot. You know, no one was filming there. Yeah, when Pete Lee gets shot, yeah. You get shot. And there was other elements. And we're like, how do we do that? And one thing, you know, people use animation and things like that in docs. It's it's like you said, nothing new. But one thing that I always hate is when it doesn't feel organic. Like, it right. feels like a crutch. And we were thinking, how can we use some animation and some titles? We use it to illustrate stories, but we also use it to help keep track of who's who and how we're moving through time. And I said, it's got to feel natural. It's got to feel like guar. And we were like, oh, Jack Kirby. That's how we do it because Hunter Jackson was all the guys were obviously very influenced by Jack Kirby. So that makes sense to us. So once we had that aha moment, we're like, oh, we'll just make it look like Jack Kirby. I think it felt a lot more organic in there. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It did. So keep those donations coming. Now let's go to Beefcake in the basement. Beefcake the Mighty here. You know, one of the greatest things about being dead is becoming a part of the food chain. Tim, you might have mentioned the Joan Rivers interview and you show yeah. a bit of that in the film, Scott, and also a bit from the Jerry Springer show. So I watch those interviews in their entirety. They're on YouTube. And I've seen a couple of other interviews with members of the band. I mean, in character, it seems like you know, they're basically sort of trying to point out what well, looks to me anyway, like they're trying to point out about society's hypocrisies. This is okay. You'll go watch a film that's full of blood and guts. You'll watch a new Tarantino film or you'll watch any number of 
bloodthirsty film. But hey, for us to do this on stage, that seems wrong to you. And it seems like in both cases, you know, with uh, they won Joan Rivers over and they it looks like they even won Jerry Springer over to an extent. So, OK, you make some valid points. Well, actually, with Springer, he got fed to the world maggot. Yeah, they, took him, to on, show. they <laughs> took him to a show. They put him on stage and fed him to the world maggot. It looks like on the surface, it, the band is just there to have a good time to do their Python-esque humor. And that's not just visually. I mean, look, I've, I've only listened to Scum Dogs of the Universe, and that was for the first time this week and was listening to the lyrics. And you even talk about some of the lyrics in the film, you know, uh, fish fucking and, and stuff like that. So this is not meant to be taken seriously. But is it their intention to be social satirists? I think you mentioned Lenny Bruce in the film as well, which seemed like you know, he was another guy who was saying things that were not acceptable at the time, and he paved the way for a, a lot of comedy that took place afterwards. So did they set out to be social satirists to make points, or they just say, no, we want to have fun? No, yeah, they 100% did. It comes to your point earlier that, you know, Tim was talking about. It's something that feels simple, but it also there's something to it. You know, it looks like, oh, it's these aliens that are cutting people's heads off. Everybody likes that. You know, it's the lowest common denominator. But there always has been a lot of social commentary in Guar. And in the Jerry Springer interview, you know, Danielle Stamp, who plays Slyminster Hyman, she said this, you know, there's always been black humor, always. Mm -hmm. There's always been satire and political satire, social satire. They're pointing out the hypocrisy of humans by being these crazy aliens that want to destroy humanity. They're poking fun of the fact that humanity is destroying itself. You know, like they joke about that. You know, like you guys are going to kill yourselves before we even get the pleasure of killing you. They're just holding up a mirror. They're like, we're doing, exactly. we're showing you what you really are. We're showing you what you really are. The ugliness. Right. And then they kill it. <laughs> right. Well, yeah. even in uh, one of the, the more recent tours, they had like the little fast food mascot who goes out and he's trying to push his agenda of fast food where they, they slice him in half and he looks like little burger boy. It's weird because I said to Mike and he kind of agreed with me where when we talked, I said, I kind of equate Guar in the same realm that I do the residents where I see the residents as being kind of like observers and they twist what's already there and kind of warp it in a way that to present it as something different. But you know what they're saying, but they're just seeing it through different eyes, you know, but they're doing it in their own unique way. And not just the fact that the residents have their own view and Guar has their own view. The residents kind of created their own kind of corporation. What was so funny is that everybody's back in the 90s, you know, oh, so pop gone, has gone corporate, man, they're corporate, you're corporate everybody's corporate. But the idea of, of creating a corporation, independent corporation of your own, Guar now has gone into a restaurant with the Guar bar. They've gone into comics. They've gone into hot sauce. They've got their own marijuana. They've got their own booze. They've got their own trademark booze. I mean, they've done so much and they're definitively put their stamp on so many different avenues of media and just things out there, just the way the residents did. So I think there's something to be said to that for creating your own industry and for yeah. keeping it afloat for 30 years that's something to be said mentioning the uh the alcohol they've got the big whiskey and on top they have a pewter sculpted head of each of the band members and on the fan groups online people are paying like 150 the bottle's 100 but they're paying 150 just to get the toppers from each other to make a set people have to have it war can't make enough they're a steamroller you can't stop war now you could replace yeah. them with all new characters and all new members and war would still steamroll the universe it would still happen so guar is more a concept 
rather than uh, it's not the cult of personality except for it's the the cult of the characters you know i mean like right. there was genuine sadness within the band at the passing of dave brocky and Corey smoot but it seems like it didn't matter who was playing beefcake the mighty or it didn't right. matter who was playing flatus maximus as long as the concept kept going which seems to be quite a distinction between them and any other band that loses some sort of iconic member guar will continue but it doesn't right. matter who's in the lead role as long as they keep doing the same thing it's the hand it's not the fingers that's mm. what it's all about you know but the one thing that i have to mention though with what you're saying though morris is like when Corey passed then flattest that was the end of that yeah. And so, you know, and the other one, too, is I don't care what anybody says, man. As far as I'm concerned, there can only be one sex executioner, right? Yeah, like, right. Yeah. you know, he's always been my favorite. Always been my favorite. Man. Everybody has their their own favorite character in Guar, but for me, it's always been Chuck and this executioner. Chuck's a great guy. Another example of somebody, he wasn't technically the founder, but Guar never would have been what it was without him. He's a, a fantastic artist, a fantastic oh, yeah. painter. Oh, yeah. And, you know, to your point, like, that Guar can live on forever. It's true, but it's got to be someone that can keep the spirit alive. Sure, um, sure. That, that's why I think they've been successful, you know, without, unfortunately, you know, Dave Brockie and Hunter Jackson, you know, without them, even though they were the ones that created it, it kept a lot, it, it was kept alive because you did have people like Michael Dirks, Bob Gorman, Matt McGuire, Brad yep. Roberts that yep. kept the spirit alive. Yep. So I think that's the danger there is yes, they could go on forever, but you have to get some Someone that gets it. And right. that's one thing I've talked to the guys about is that they have a lot of people that are like, I want to be in Guar, you know, whether they're a musician or they want to be an artist. Like, I want to do it. And then they they last for like a month because right. well, then that's they what... see how, how much work it is. And right. they're like, oh, never mind. I, I thought I'd get just get to come and, right. you know, paint some stuff and, right. and it, that'd be it. And that's, that's I, not it. I thought about that when Zach Blair from Goldfinger joined in playing Flattus. He's a vegan. He's like a straight edge kind of guy. And I'm like, how is he going to survive in a band that's that politically driven and killing dead babies and raping dogs and whatever? And he was in it for like eight months and they cut one album and he was gone. You always wonder, like, what does it take to join the slave pit? Like you mentioned, I don't think a lot of people are capable of handling it. It's too hard. <laughs> no, like um, when I talked to Mike, that's what he was saying, too, because he said that basically they have Bob and uh, Matt as their fabricators now. He said and then they, they have people come in to do some artwork and suddenly they think they're going to get the instant gratitude and all of a sudden after a month and a half it's just kind of like oh wait a minute man and you know Mike's kind of like look we'll be vindicated by history all right but right now forget it man it's just like this is you either got to be in it for being in it or there's a door because it's not for wimps like I said not for wimps absolutely there's a line in there a big question mark that we have in there is can Guar go on forever is that right Right. is that wrong and you know some people say still got the, the the people that say oh Guar died with Brocky, and you have some people that say, oh, it doesn't matter at all. You know, there's both ends of the spectrum. And one line that Michael Bishop said to me is, right, this is just talking about right now, if Bob or Matt ever quit, that would probably be it. That's it, you know, and that goes to show you the power that the art, I mean, Bob and Matt, for those that don't know, they both sing songs, but they are not musicians. They don't do any of that. They're just, the, like you said, they're the fabricators. That's one thing that I think passing the torch, those guys get it. They were not original members. They were just guys that got the shit jobs to do in the beginning they were
weren't even the main artists. You look at Bob and Matt and you're like, you guys were in Guar in the 80s because they look like kids still to this day, you know? Yep, it's yep. crazy to think that yep. Bob and Matt were in there like back in the mid 80s, you know? Right. Uh, they were both in there, but they were uh, people like Don and Hunter and Chuck were able to pass that torch to Bob and Matt. And I hope that Bob and Matt are able to pass that torch on to somebody else. Right. Well, I talked to Mike about the future of Guar and I said, you know, as we were talking earlier about the different things that they've ventured into with alcohol and with the restaurant and all these things. And Mike had said to me, he said, he'd like to see them get more into films again. And me then, too. And he also said that this idea, which I thought was brilliant, was that if Guar could do a residency in Vegas, they could actually have an interactive experience, like a haunted house type of thing where you go in and you see all the props, you know, get jizzed on or whatever. And then at the very end, you get the performance. Yes. But that would be amazing. Or I even mentioned to Mike, I said, as much as, you know, you're not getting the full experience, I could see Guar going into the realm of VR in the future. Yeah. I could see the VR Guar would be amazing, you know, where you just put the headset on and you're just basically being assaulted by it. You know, like, that would be amazing. I wanted to bring up too, and this is an interesting thing. People don't realize too that Guar has played worldwide. And I said, like we were talking earlier at the beginning of the episode about how I said the first time I experienced Guar. And I said to Mike, I said, well, I can only imagine them going to Japan, how the Japanese experienced Guar for the first time. And you would figure that they would totally just embrace it the way the Japanese with their love for anime and kaiju and all that shit. Yeah. Right? Mike wasn't with the band at the time, but he told me, he said that the Japanese, half of them wanted to get jizzed on and half of them didn't. So that they actually <laughs> had to put a designated spooge area in the front, just like, like like, like the Evil Dead, you know, like the, like the the musical, like the Splash Zone. They had to tape it all out and just tell the Japanese and write it all out in Japanese writing saying, pass this line, you're going to get wet. So behind this line, you're okay, right? And that's what they had to do. But I'm just thinking, you know, like it would just be amazing different cultures, the way that they went to different cultures and see how people reacted. I can't see them going over big in the Middle East with the current tour, but <laughs> with Joe Biden and the, uh, I don't know, you, you, you've seen sketch where they had the guy Osama bin Laden come out. Yeah, they right. killed Biden last Tuesday when right. I was at the show. Right, but it's just interesting to they me. They call him how- the president of Canada. <laughs> <laughs> We know you're the president of Canada and all, but you still have to die. But I just found it interesting how, you know, it just made me think how we as Western culture have embraced Guar and understanding, get all the jokes and the humor, but just globally how they were taken in different places. Totally. That's interesting. Like you said, they tour all over the world. And that's also fascinating to me because you see Guar tours with a van and then also a big like 18 wheeler to keep all that crap. in. it's like I asked him, I was like, how do you guys do that? Take all that 
overseas and it is this whole big thing. You know, they just last year went to Europe for the first time since the new lineup without Dave. So it had right. been a while, but yeah, they took it over there. Oh shit. I remember like in the beginning when they had their war wagon, they had that school bus with a big eyeball on the front of it. Cause <laughs> yeah. I, like in 88, yeah. we saw them load out and it was an actual old ass school bus. And I'm thinking, how the hell are you guys going to get across the border in a school bus? <laughs> They did. You gotta give them the credit for that. We were hanging around behind the show, and somebody was carrying an amp with a, or a cabinet. And they got to the back of the bus, and they couldn't lift it up. And I ran over and I'm like, "Hey, man, I'll grab a side." And then they started piling stuff in front of me, and I'm like, "Well, hold on, guys. I'm not loading your truck, but yeah." <laughs> I, started, I started lifting one end of the gear for them, but like you mentioned, those guys are, are DIY, and uh, I have no shame in helping them out. I paid for a ticket. I don't care. I'll, I'll carry your gear because I know how hard you're working. So that was uh, the big bus of the eyeball. <laughs> I wanted to bring up something else, Scott, that you do talk about in the film, and I'm not, I mean, I'd be interested to know whether there's been more of this happen besides this incident, but there's an incident that happened in Charlotte, North Carolina. Odorous Arungus has his cuttlefish of Cthulhu. Confiscated. Which gets confiscated by the local constabulary for use in a trial against him for obscenity. They confiscate the cuttlefish of Cthulhu, which is the huge svance between Odorous's legs. It's really a fish. It's not a dick, it's a fish. They took Dave's dick away in a five-gallon bucket. You know, that's the only thing they took, was just the, the dick in a five-gallon bucket. We never got the cuttlefish back either. It's still in evidence room in Charlotte, North Carolina somewhere. But I heard he got arrested. I'm like, oh, what did he do? And they told me what he did. I said, he didn't do anything? He was just wearing his costume? Really? Now, I was thinking, and this was when? Was this uh, mid-80s or early 90s no, or something like that? No, this was early 90s. Early 90s. Early 90s. Now, in 1969, if I recall correctly, Jim Morrison got himself in trouble with the police in Florida for did he or did he not? And I'm thinking, has America absolutely not gotten past that in those 20 years? Apparently, they say that that evidence is still stuck in the North Carolina police archives. So if they were to create a new cuttlefish of Cthulhu and if uh, Blothar were to say, you know, I'm going to, for old time's sake, it's it's Dave Brocky's birthday, I'm going to try this. What would happen today in 2021? Is this still a deal in some parts of the US? I mean, was that a surprise to the band at the time? I think it was just because it's not real. You know, they say that in the documentary, you know, it's like, oh, you got nudity. And he's like, it's a fake rubber butt. Like, it's not real. <laughs> There's no actual yeah. penetration happening on the stage. Yeah, I was a little bit shocked that even back then, you know, the early 90s, that, that they would have confiscated it. I don't know. I don't think so. So now, I mean, Guar, now you've got Lothar, who I don't think it has a name, but he's got these four udders. Right. <laughs> kind of look like udders, kind of look like four right. pieces that he shoots right. green slime usually out of. And I don't think right. they've had that confiscated yet. It was funny because Mike, when he was talking about the construction of Blothar, and it was, uh, I think, Chris Bobes where he was talking about how he said, you ought to have udders, man. You know, you need udders, right? And then he was saying he likes how it's androgynous. You can't tell whether they're penises or udders. 
Avengers, right? Like you're yes, not you're yeah. not exactly sure what they are, right? And then you know, and it looks a little vaginal too. So I mean, and it's funny because yeah, it's just the way the way it's set up. Now the whole thing about that cuttlefish, you know, incident was that I had heard apparently the rumor was one of the guys that was a chief of police or something, his daughter had gone to his show and she came home and went, oh my god, there was a guy with a big penis. And then the guy went, what? And then he comes in and they, so apparently like they weren't on the scene, like the police, apparently it was like someone had given them an earful of, of what went on at this show. And they immediately okay. just swarmed the place thinking that there was a full on orgy or something. Right. But it's interesting because it's not the first time that happened in that area because like, uh, it was the band skinny puppy when they did a tour vivisect six, when they were doing a fake vivisection of a, of a dog, of a fake dog. Oh yeah. On yeah. stage. And, and they got locked up for that too. So it was the same thing where someone had gone out and said, we saw this thing go on on stage and then the police all swarm in and show up and then blah, 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 you know? But I just think it's hilarious where if the police had really done their research on Guar, Guar has done far, far worse things than just come on stage with a fake phallus. <laughs> That's what always made me laugh about it was I'm like, they're getting busted for that? That's just the cherry on top of it. We have a blurb about that in the uh, in the doc where you know they have to call the record label, which was right. you know Metal right. Blade Records. Right. Like, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, they're like Dave got arrested. And he's like, oh god, what? You know, he's thinking the worst. And it's like, what was he doing? Oh, he was just standing there in his costume. Like that's it. Like right. what the of all the things they could have been arrested for? Because Dave Brocky did do in addition to, and we go into this a little bit in the doc. In addition to the crazy live show, he was a, a shit starter in real life too. Oh yeah, he uh, of all the things that's it he was just standing there with his costume on got right, arrested right if you notice on the joan Rivers show he doesn't come out with it he knows you know and, uh, and i mean yeah. and there's other been in other interviews where he's come out in a towel what was the biggest surprise to you about guar in completing this film and going through the whole process of it all what's an element or a couple elements that really surprised you about the whole experience so before i started filming i did as much research as i could on guar because you know, I wanted to prove myself to them. You know, I think I had mentioned that I had to make a little mini doc. You know, these guys, understandably, we go into it a couple times in the doc. They've had Hollywood people and other people come in, and it always is usually not good. So I think the fact that I wasn't Hollywood helped me. So, you know, I'm coming in, but I still, I want to prove myself that I'm the guy to do this because I really wanted it so bad. So I'd done a bunch of research already. And so I was surprised at that level of all the crazy stuff that I didn't know. But then you can research all day, you know, and by the way, Guar has a book called Let There Be Guar. It's right. a nice, the big white uh, Gorman yeah. yeah, It's a I'm big, yeah. on the shelf right beside me. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. I just read it, through it a few weeks ago. It's fantastic. It's, it's yeah. dense with information. It is. Yes. <laughs> I'd read that and I'd done as much research. You can prepare all you want, but until you get there and talk, talk to the people, there's mm-hmm. something about hearing it right from the source. And one thing that I didn't quite expect so much was the absolute raw emotion there from being in a band this long. Of course, I knew that, you know, if we talked about Dave or we talked about Corey, 
I expected some emotion there. I mean, that's a brother of yours that passes. But if you notice in the doc, there's a couple of times where people get pretty emotional about other things. Mike and his sickness. And Brad Roberts and Mike Dirks, those are the two guys, you know, that's for people that are listening. That's the guitar player and the drummer. They've been in the band the longest of anybody. There are people like Mike Bishop that was there before, but he took a sabbatical from Guar. They are the people that have been in Guar the most amount of years. So you can imagine that they have a a relationship that most people just couldn't understand. And so when you hear those guys talk about each other and you hear some cracks in their voices, you know, that's poignant to me. That's something I didn't expect. That's like the brotherhood. But then on the betrayal end, Hunter Jackson and Matt McGuire, they have Mm -hmm. a very unique relationship. And that was something I did not see coming. The raw emotion between those two guys. When you talk about raw emotion, when uh, Pete Lee gets shot and Mike Dirks sticks by him and everybody yeah. else hauls ass and Pete yeah. Lee is just like that's who he is he just he'll stick by it. he was gonna die like if they were gonna pull yeah. guns on us like he was going down with me like that was it you yeah know? that's yeah. like the real deal beyond just being great musicians that stick to it it's like that's literally to the death like right. literal like I was going to stay with my brother until we go to Valhalla like that's just right. how you know that's yep. how he is you know yeah exactly and that's the one thing like I was saying in the beginning you know when I said that it's kind of difficult to capture everything that Guar is in a documentary, but you managed to nail the heart of it with the, the emotion, really putting it on display. I mean, just the way these guys feel about each other. I mean, like Guar can be summed up in four words, mythology, fraternity, debauchery, <laughs> and I say perseverance. Yeah. They're so straightforward, like just the most down to earth people when you talk with them. No, like you figure, like, you know, seeing them on stage, you're going, man, what kind of, you know, messed up, deranged individuals are these people? And then afterwards, when, you know, you shoot the shit with them and you sit down with these people, they're just like, hey, how's it going, man? Yeah. Straight as anybody Bishop else. Just as a, a new baby, right? Yeah, oh, yeah. I mean, they're... his wife, not Bishop. Yeah. But, but yeah, and all online, you're seeing this big guy with the beard and he's got the baby. He's got, it's anybody, ever average Joe posting baby pictures. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and you know, to that point, one thing to kind of throw your two last questions together, another thing that surprised me was how different they all are, how the wide array of energy that these guys have, you know, and in every band you have different personalities, but you know, in a band of four people, singer, guitar player, drummer, rhythm, guitar player, whatever, they all kind of are somewhat similar. They may be a little different, but you know, you've got people like Brad Roberts, who's just a comedian. He's just hilarious, you know? And then you've got someone like Mike Dirks, who's very from the heart. You know, he's just such a he's quiet. He doesn't talk a lot. But when he does, you're like, damn, that was profound. And then you've got someone like Bishop, who's got a freaking Ph.D. And you'll notice it in the doc. He doesn't romanticize the past at all. He's like, this is what happened. This is what happened. Because I think because he has that Ph.D., you know, and then you've got people like Matt, who's just a bundle of energy. You know, he's like, this happened. I saw a chick blowing fire and people getting their heads cut off and I had to be part of it. You know, it was like. It almost like you're like, how can these guys all be friends? Because they all are so different. But that wide array of personality and skills is what makes it this amazing right. thing. You know where to find me, honey. under your bed. Better sleep with the light on sugar. In a while since I said that they 
don't talk. Like, they don't really talk emotionally. Like, they were saying in the documentary, we, we really don't talk to each other heart, man to man heart to heart. But we've been brothers for, like, so many years, like, exactly what you're saying. So would you say that any of them was an introvert? I mean, I know you, you mentioned a moment ago that one of them is quiet and soft-spoken. But personality-wise, would you say that any of them was actually an introvert? And it was an effort to push themselves out and do the crazy shit on stage. I don't think so. You know, like I, I kind of had mentioned, Dirks is a quiet person, but I think it's not introverted. It's he's just a very strong personality who knows when to talk and knows when not to. He's a quiet guy, but he's got a power to him, similar to what Dave Brocky had, but it comes from being kind of quiet and kind of sitting there as opposed to Dave's power that came, which I have to say, I never met Dave Brocky, but only from the interviews that I've seen. Dirks has an equal power, but from the other end of the spectrum. They're all crazy. I mean, I think you have to be to get it wrapped up into that and i mean crazy in a good way willing to go all out i think you have to be to get to, to even try to be in that group hey this is beefcake the mighty of guar i'm pustulous maximus with guar here at amoeba music and this is what's in my bag you mentioned bishop having a phd i just discovered that myself a couple of weeks ago watching his ted talk beefcake or i mean sorry bishop has a ted talk if you haven't seen it you need to check it out he doesn't stumble around he's like um uh he speaks like a phd he walks and talks like one. You wouldn't know by watching him that he was a, a member of Guar at all. That TED Talk also is a great way for people to, if you don't understand Guar, he really dissects it and, and, and explains why it is a smart thing. Everything they did was deliberate. It's not just this big boneheaded, oh, I got to see someone get their head cut off. There's more to it. And he, he and that, not yeah. head. <laughs> right, right. Not right. at all. Yeah, PhD in music. And uh, I believe that's why Brocky chose him as a founding member because he's the only one that really knew how to read and write music everybody else was just a punk they just wanted to just <laughs> jump on stage and throw paper mache cubes at people and they wanted to play around it's like this guy knows how he can make us a band yes he how to play and dirks didn't have any idea he was going to school to to learn music and uh he's like i don't know about that heavy metal i, I can play jazz a little bit from what i've read yeah that, that that was interesting to hear bishop explain why he was an integral part of that is that he, he needed yeah. to teach to be a band that's another thing i think that and this doesn't spoil the documentary because this is out there in general, you know, Michael Bishop was that, like you said, he was their original bass player and he was the guy that basically created the real band for Dave. You know, yeah. it's like, we got to get serious. And he was the first serious musician. And you find out how many people were recruited by Bishop. Both Dirks and Brad yeah. were recruited by Bishop. Also, Bob Gorman, who's one of their longest running artists, was recruited by Bishop. All of those guys, I mean, Bob, Dirks, and Brad, those are like central cogs in the Wheel of Guar. They were all recruited by Bishop, which makes it that more poignant when, you know, yeah, Bishop leaves and he comes back as the singer. It's not a gimmick. It's so beautiful how that worked out, how he's like, it's almost like dad coming home after all these years, you know? He, uh, right. I think that's why people latched on, like, bringing a new character to Guar and then making him the front man and expecting the fans to just be cool with it. I think everybody was cool with it because he was already a member of Guar. If it was a new guy and a new character, people would probably be a little upset with that, I would think. But they latched right on to Blothar. You're like, oh, he's the old beefcake, so yep. he's good with Guar. He's part of that crew. And what a crazy coincidence that he makes sense because he he had the, what do you call it, like the street cred. Because he was an, right. orig he was an right. original member and a central member, but also he's a great singer. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. That's, that's what's insane is that he made sense both 
ethically, I guess, if that's the way you want to put it. But right. also, like, what are the odds that he's also just has a crazy voice? I mean, that guy is oh, yeah. dynamite. Actually, the we, first time I ever met Mike was uh, he when he left Guar, he had a band called Keypone. Yeah. And, and I saw Keypone actually open up for Helmet in Toronto. And we interviewed Mike and we got to talk with him. And he was just so laid back. And he was just like, yeah, I had to do my own thing and find my own path. And, you know, but it's, it's great how everything turned out. Yeah. When we saw Guar last Tuesday, when we saw Bishop singing odorous songs, it yeah. felt like everybody in the club had had a few drinks and you all your arms around each other and you're all singing along and you didn't care that it wasn't Brocky because it was a Scumdog's 30th anniversary. So they were doing all Scumdog songs and there's no Beefcake songs back then. A cool place to park, maybe. Yeah. And then in filler throughout the show was a lot of Beefcake songs. And when he was singing his songs, you could really feel Bishop pouring himself. He's like, this is my song and I'm going to belt it the best I can. Can. But the other songs, it was kind of like he was singing to Dave or the crew and we were all just together. It was yeah. It was weirdly emotional for a metal mosh pit, I'll tell you. It was strange. Yeah. But it was so much fun. There was me, my wife, some other person, the Barry, we were right up at the front. You could see their pupils and stuff. Like we were right up there. And so this 30th anniversary tour isn't just a Guar show. It's almost like a tribute to Dave. It feels like they're all paying respect to him. Every song. I, I it's agree. an incredible thing to see. As someone who just coming on to the whole notion of Gua through your film, it seems to me like the most wonderful thing about the band at this stage is it's not a, a nostalgia act. They can still do a 30th anniversary tribute, but yeah. every day, every show is going to be, this is who the band is now. We can pay tribute to the things that we did, but this is no take out your Zippo lighters. And yeah, this is who we are now. We're still relevant. Another thing to piggyback off that, they're not an nostalgic act is that a lot of bands they make a couple of good records and then they make other records that no one cares about and it, they really you just want to hear them play the hits from the old days but Guar like their most recent record Blood of Gods is freaking awesome if I were to go to a Guar show and they were like hey we're only going to play Blood of God songs great there's other bands I don't want to speak ill of anybody but if Metallica was like we're not going to play anything off of the Black Album or Ride right. the Lightning uh, we're only going to play the song we've written within the last five years I'd be like I don't know if I want to be here <laughs> yeah, I want to hear a couple of the oldies right we're only going to play Load or something like that I don't know if I'd want to be there we're going to play our album that we did with Lou Reed there you yeah. go <laughs> but nope. you know Guar, another thing that they've done that I think is really amazing is what is the Guar sound who knows like because from day one they always experimented with different styles of music right. they can do whatever the hell they want and I this new record I really love and some of that is probably because because it's, you know, I love Motorhead. I love ACDC. I love bands like that a lot. To me, the, the Blood of God is a little more rock and roll than metal. It's got a lot of metal, but it's, and that's, you know, Bishop's voice and then Brent Ferguson, their guitar player. That's what they do. Well, that, but, that was when Dirks was ill, right? And um, when they were recording that, I think I read it with Bishop. He said, this is Dirks' album. Every song almost sounds like a different style. Like there's a Cooper song and there's an ACDC song. And, and it's like, this might be my last album, so I'm going to play this is one of my favorite bands I'll write a song like that and then right. every track is like that and then everybody else came in and just did the part that Dirks told them to do I'm glad he pulled through because now we have that masterpiece that every track is yeah. one of his favorites right. <laughs> speaking of ACDC Morris there's an Australian 
connection to Guaira as well because they happen to cover a well-known ACDC song, If You Don't Know What It Is. Which song do you think they would like to cover from ACDC? Uh, she's got the jack. If You Want Blood. Ah, of course. Do you want blood? People of the AV Club of the Onion, do you want blood? It's criminal. There you go. It's either going to be sex or violence. I want to put something to you all as the Guar experts. I mean, I'm not sure if I'm sort of getting the, the correct picture on what you were saying about that set of covers that they did. But Scott, the very first show that Tim and I did for See Here, we were speaking about this documentary on Gigi Allen, Hated. And the thing that came out of that was Gigi Allen doing all this crazy, violent punk stuff at his shows. And then when his fans said, right, ah, we love that. We're going to pigeonhole you. That's what you do. And he said, oh, yeah, you think so? I'm going to start recording country music. And then they were scratching their heads. Is, is what you're talking about there with the other stuff that they did, did they ever do anything that was stylistically a million miles away from scum dogs of the universe or anything else? We're talking like a million miles. We're not talking about going from one style of metal to a different style of metal. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. They went totally the opposite direction. They have like the loungy torch song called right. uh, Don't Need a Man. experimented with country a little bit of rap and hip-hop and uh Uh, go-go with the horns yeah they have horns in some of their songs some of their stuff almost sounds a little bit lookout records like pop punkish a little bit the funny thing about you mentioned fish fuck is it's a catchy song it sounds like a green day song Listen to that, and I thought, this is a really catchy melody. This is fantastic. If, if they had had different lyrics to that, I mean, that probably could have been a radio hit. Uh, yeah, yeah, but yeah. that's not what they were about. Yeah, they'd like, I got a riff or a, a hook. Let's just make it a whole song. It doesn't matter what genre it is. It yeah. sounds like Guar Song. Guar Song is a genre. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it doesn't matter if it's I Don't Need a Man or I'm Gonna Kill You. I think if anybody tries to do a Guar cover in their set, is making a mistake. Unless they stylistically do it their own way. Right. But I've seen them do so many covers. Covers. Like, I mean, they covered uh, Billy Thorpe's Children of the Sun. I saw them when they did the X-Cops. They were doing Highway Star. There's a number of shows I've seen them do different covers. I mean, like another band covering Guar, not Guar doing covers. Right, oh, they can right, cover right, anybody. Yeah. But if somebody yeah. were to do a Guar song live, you'd be like, no, 
there's no suits. There's no. What are you guys doing? Yeah, we, yeah. I was in a band. We did Ham on the Bone, and it was a mistake. We just go up, just tear it up, and everybody's like, "What is this music? It's it's fast and hard. It's thrash." But what are you guys doing? Nobody got it. To kind of tack onto that, you know, it's not covering, but essentially you have Bishop covering Brocky because he's singing the songs Brock yeah. used to do. And I asked him, "Did you feel that you were the only guy who could do it?" Because there's another part when we talk about Pustulus, their new guitar player, and Flattis. Corey Smoot passed, and one of his good friends, Brent Ferguson, said, I had to have that role because I didn't want an outsider to have it. It had to be me. Yeah. And so, similarly, I asked Bishop, I was like, did you feel a need that it had to be you because you felt you could honor Dave's legacy in a way that nobody else could? And he said, no, I didn't feel like that. Because there are other people that probably have a voice. I mean, Bishop's voice is 180 degrees from Brocky's. Brocky's very low, gravelly, baritone, and Bishop's is high. <laughs> you know, he's covered ACDC. And he said, no, but the reason I thought it should be me was because I got Brocky's humor. Brocky isn't just singing. Like, I think we talked about this before. It's, he's not just singing. He's also performing. Right. And halfway through, he'll kind of go into a silly voice. You know, it's not just a metal voice. He'll go all these other different ways. And he's like, yeah. I knew Dave and I knew his humor. And I knew that not just the singing aspect, but I got the humor in a way that someone who never met him would. That's what I was talking about earlier, like with the whole tr Charles Nelson Riley and the whole kind of Vegas shtick. That's exactly what he would do. I've always loved like Sick of You. He'll just do all the, the fake uh, echoing and everything that ow, 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 ow. You know, like, yeah. Like yeah. all that. Like it's hilarious, right? I thought it was brilliant when they did Billy Ocean. That was hilarious. You can get into my car. But he took it seriously. I mean, it, he, he, yeah. he was taking the piss out of it, but he was taking it seriously. And I mean, that's what I really loved about like all the, the when they did even Kansas, Carry On My Wayward Son. They nailed the song and they were serious about it as much as they were poking fun. Well, it's yeah. like when you show somebody at some point in time, you put on Guar, it doesn't matter which CD or whatever album you put on. And they're like, wow, these guys are really good. And then you go, well, they play music. That's kind of like a side thing. They're really these big foam rubber monster dudes that shoot blood everywhere. And they're like, what? They're not musicians and you're like well sort of but the music stands on its own if you just played it somewhere people would be like oh you know that's hard great rock and roll i love it and all the art we get on top of that is a bonus i did have a, a question that's kind of aimed at everybody i guess sort of a three-part for scott earlier you mentioned that you had to prove yourself to guar to be to be the guy to do the documentary my question for you is what made you believe that you need to do a guar documentary out of all the things in the world you could be doing you're like today guar documentary why guar for morris having only been exposed to the documentary introduction of guar i know everybody in their point in time goes foam rubber blood monsters what is this what what, what happened when you discovered the guar existed and for tim you saw me as a teenager have that wtf moment what was it like for you the first time somebody showed you guar so i guess uh whoever wants to have at it. You know, I love film, obviously. <laughs> I love making films. I love making documentaries. And I've always been a huge music fan. You know, I, I played in a band from the time I was not real long, but from the time I was about 19 till 23, you know, and always been real into music. So I, I thought it'd be cool to do a music doc. 
But then once I found out the history of Guar a little bit more, I said, there's nothing like this. There's nothing like this. And so many docs are being made now. We're kind of in this documentary boom. Everybody's doing it. And I said, I have to do this because there's nothing else like it. If you do a documentary about a band, there's probably another documentary about another band that's at least kind of similar. You have certain themes that you always hear in music docs where we were independent, we were we were struggling, we were playing at dive bars and it was hard. Finally, we had our big break and then we had some internal conflict and we had to, are we going to sell out or not? And then once we got famous, that was difficult. Then we got into drugs and there's certain beats that are in every rock doc. And this just to me, I was like, there's nothing like this where it's like it started out as a movie and then the guy that wanted it to be a movie got pissed because the band overshadowed the movie and half the people don't even play instruments and there was all this stuff that I was like this is in the sea of documentaries that are out there I really felt that if I did a good job this story could stand out because there's nothing else like it so that's what made mm-hmm. me really 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 want to do this but yeah I'm glad you did it <laughs> go ahead, go ahead oh, Morris as I think I said earlier I mean I knew of the name primarily because of them touring here and beheading Tony Abbott the show is over. Fuck you, Tony Abbott! but hadn't really sort of followed the music. And I mean, we've just gone and discussed that Guar are not just musically one thing. So maybe <laughs> I need to look more into yeah. that. But watching this documentary, as I think Tim was saying before, it's just good old fashioned entertainment, but within the realm of a musical ensemble. I mean, you're talking before, Tim, about, I think you mentioned Soupy Sales. And right. um, if you take away the style of music and maybe how excessive it got, but it's, it's like good old fashioned music hall entertainment. You imagine going in somewhere in the 1930s and you pay your coin in and you get a few songs and you get a few costumes and you get a few sketches that's what the my perception of this is they are the direct descendants uh many years down the track of that and just watching them i get it it's funny the mulan spooge <laughs> watching this i loved it i'd love it probably if tim can sort of say right knowing what your taste in music is this is the album for you or this is the playlist for you or something like right. that so i could delve more into the music because i mean i think a lot of what we've been speaking about today is about gua as a collective gua as a visual experience but maybe not as much about the music itself in prep for this i listen to scum dogs of the universe from start to finish and i get the humor in that but musically it's not necessarily what i normally listen to so but i tell you if gua would tour here next year i'd go and it'd be more for the visual experience and i think that was sort of like a question which i planned for earlier on but i think it's just more of a statement now that they obviously did take themselves musically seriously because as i think you've all said up until now if the music wasn't any good and if they didn't have absolutely cracking musicianship then the novelty would have gone away within 12 months to two years or something yeah even the costumes went for paper mache to like movie level monster makeup you know like the latex foam rubber and everything they never consulted tom savini i just sort of wondering for maybe you guys whether listening to a guar album in and of itself you put that on your turntable you put that in your cd player you listen to it 
are you immediately sort of putting visuals in your mind? Oh, yeah, I remember them doing this live. Or mm-hmm. do you always get the humor in it just by listening to it of itself? If they had never done the costumes, if they've never done the stage shenanigans, would they have been as great to you? Little of both. I think as a Guar fan, even for songs that they didn't have skits for at the show or a music video for, when you hear a new album, you can see a skit playing in your mind with the song you're hearing for the first time. You can imagine those characters doing those things. Like if you read a comic book, you fill in the frames between panels with your mind to make a little movie. Right. To answer the question for you, Sketch, about me seeing Guar the first time, well, it's funny because, I mean, I know everybody else used Cooper as a benchmark. Cooper and Kiss. And for me, I always thought, okay, I know they're going to be theatrical because that's what it says there. And then... You know, what I saw was just mind-blowing. Just like I said, you know, it's just you can't comprehend everything that's that's going down the first time you see them. And to me, it's always kind of like, you know, where people get abducted by, people allegedly get abducted by UFOs. And then they try to talk about, you know, their experience. And mm-hmm. just say, like, you know, it's like, yeah, man, there was this guy, and then there was this probe, and then they stuck it in, a thing, you know, it was like that. And coming yeah, back. you sound crazy at, the first day after your first war show. Yeah, exactly. People are like, you did what last? night and yeah. you tell the same story again and they're yeah. like i don't think i got what you're talking about again yeah it's you know and people are looking at you like what like what do you what i don't get this but it's just amazing but for your for your teenage friends that did get it they go to the next show with you absolutely and once you once you <laughs> do right. get it man it, it's like getting the the antarctic clap you know once you get it you ain't getting rid of it man it's just slowly going to spread you know i have like the brief guar story is um i had hello on vinyl and uh, Scum Dogs and Cassette and American Must Be Destroyed on CD. So that's the time period when you had to change formats to get the new album every time. And I was sitting in my room and I always had to play my music pretty quiet because my parents were right under me in their living room. And I heard my mom just kind of say to my dad, go talk to him. Like, <laughs> this is the dad talk where my heavy metal is evil and it's all going to come down. My life is over. My dad comes up the stairs and he goes, so what you listening to? And I'm like, of every album I own, 700 CDs at the time, you walk in when I'm playing Guar. So I <laughs> the America Must Be Destroyed CD cover and he opens it up and that's the one that folds out into the poster, the nine panels. It's got all the characters on the back, all the lyrics and he's reading through and he's like so what is this really all about and I'm like well they're kind of art guys they make like foam rubber like Godzilla suits and they you know they chop each other and blood shoots around he goes oh like Evil Dead 2 and I'm like yeah like fake blood shooting all over but they do it on stage my dad sits down in the corner of my bed puts one hand up on one knee and he's like well you know I saw Cooper decapitate himself once and in the same <laughs> show he hung himself once and I was like did Guar just make me and my dad best friends is that <laughs> What are you doing, Mom? What happened? And he goes back downstairs and he goes, oh, that's okay. It's just some rock and roll. It's nothing. And I was like, oh, man. That was the weirdest thing. My dad just started talking about all the time. He saw Cooper get killed. And uh, Gene Simmons spitting blood and breathing fire. And, of course. And, oh, yeah. But my, yeah, my yeah. parents were teens when I was born. Like, they were both still in high school. So my dad snuck into Woodstock. And he was right into the music scene. And it was ah. pretty strange to talk about semen shooting monsters. And my dad talking about watching Alice Cooper's head pop off. And he's like, well, that's cool. You know, let me know when there's a new album. It sounds like fun. Weirdest war story I think I have. I'm going to you Gonna cut your pretty face out Gonna smash Gonna beat Gonna stomp Gonna kill you 
Scott, what's next for the film? So you've already shown it. I mean, Tim was saying at Fantasia. No, no, it wasn't at Fantasia. We were saying that, what was the name of the festival, Scott? You just won the award. So first we debuted at Fantastic Fest. That was down it, Fantastic Austin, Fest, Texas. right. Yeah. And then we did another festival called Nightstream that was, that was basically, yeah. it was three or four festivals that came together because of the COVID pandemic and did it. It was all virtual. It was 100% virtual. And that was really the opportunity for most people to watch it because you could watch it from anywhere. And that's where we won the audience award. And then we just did Sound Unseen, uh, which was in Minneapolis. And then next week we're doing Cuff Dot. Uh, in Calgary. That's the 26th. And then we don't have any other festivals. We're trying to secure a distribution deal right now because now is basically the time. Mm -hmm. We've got a little, uh, you know, a a little momentum because of the festival. So we're we're hoping to get all that worked out by the end of the year. So then sometime early next year, we can put the film out there. We're trying to work with Guar, even though we are a separate entity, because we know if we can kind of in a perfect world, do it where people can watch the movie and then there's a Guar show either the same day or the next day. That'd be a, a perfect thing. So Guar always has a lot on their plate. So we're we're going to release the movie hopefully in an area where they don't have anything else to promote so they can get fully behind it. Nice. Would it ever be something we could pick up on a merch table at a Guar show or will they not be able to make something like that happen? There Absolutely, w- there will. Yeah, that's okay. one thing we're trying to be aware of, you know, because Guar always does these very cool merch things. In addition to just a DVD or a VHS, there's always a lot of cool things, you know, like they like they just did the Scumbox uh, reunion. It had a vinyl. It had oh, yeah, uh, the big a tape. Set. It had a poster. It had signed stuff. So we want to make sure we can do that. So we want to par- make sure that if we get a distribution deal that they're in it to do some really cool merch stuff or if they're not they'll let us and guar do it so we're trying to get all those details worked out so that next year we can release this thing Uh, in a perfect world it'll be on a subscription service as well as a transactional service like itunes amazon physical and then a a limited theatrical run so video on demand will be like the main thing probably or will it stream like hulu netflix sort of thing where you can just get it with your subscription we are talking with the subscription service now to have have it on there and if it works out well it would actually start there as an exclusive and then three months later be where people can get it on itunes and amazon mm-hmm. and uh it, it, that's the deal we're looking at right now so that's what it's looking like is going to happen a subscription-based service and then the more transactional ones and, and is physical and, media going to exist at some point in time or is that 100 ancient yeah. now it's got to it's got to and it's funny because physical media is as long as it's the right project it's still viable and if anything, it makes sense. It's this one, you know, because Guar fans are such big supporters of physical media that, uh, yeah, we, we definitely want to make sure we have a good partner that will work with us on physical. I have seen, um, speaking of physical copies in Guar, of people hunting down the old videotapes that we bought for like twelve ninety nine or 20 bucks here and there through shows. Some people will go on eBay and they go up to like $100 and then someone will get in a fight and they have to have it and it goes up to like $300 for those VHS. But some of the guys will be just like, hey, I'll dub you a copy for five bucks. Yeah. I searched for all that stuff far and wide. Some of it Guar gave me and some of it, it was pretty cool whenever I was able to give them stuff. (laughs) Like, here's something of yours that, you know, that y'all don't have anymore. There was one called Guar TVD. Uh, That wasn't an official one. I don't, I I guess it was, but not like Skullhead Face or Alice in Wonderland or even Live from Antarctica. But I gave them a different version than they had, (laughs) which was pretty cool. Well, I've been to a lot of the conventions, like a horror convention, and there's a lot of VHS trading happening there. And there's VHS conventions. And I'm wondering, like, why Guar? 
Noir doesn't just put more VHS tapes back out of the show because that's the horror in underground indie crowd. They'll buy them. Oh, we'll totally. buy videotapes and put them in our 50-year-old VCRs. I, I would still buy it if they sold them at their merch table. The, the best thing they had on this tour I saw last week was it said 30th Scumdog's anniversary on the back of the tour dates and on the front it said suck a dick a lick a log right out of Salamanizer. But yeah, they have great merch. Scott, on behalf of us all, I want to say huge thanks to you for taking the time um, yeah. and allowing us to get access to watch your film and to talk with you about this and as I said for the one who had absolutely no skin in the game before watching the film I'm a huge fan of this film I mean I think we all are you've done a fantastic job I'm absolutely glad, I'm glad that you said what no one's done this it has to be me thank you yeah. so much for doing that we'll be sure to uh, plug on the Facebook side and on the podcast when it does uh, get yeah. more screenings when it does get uh, more out there for people to see because we all think this has to be seen by everyone first of all thanks for having me and thanks for the kind words thanks for watching it I appreciate all that and one quick thing you know we're not doing a lot of social media for the film right now but we talk with Guar's PR person because we figure they've got a a way bigger reach than we have so anytime we get news on it we tell them and then Guar posts about it so for information on the documentary just make sure you're following Guar on social media and that's the best way to find out about when new things happen thank you so much Scott we really really appreciate taking your time yeah. and I mean you know we blew through a couple hours really easily and I yeah. knew that was going to happen it's just there's so much we only scraped the surface I mean yeah. that's just it we'll be back in a moment uh, to talk about what's happening next month on See Here episode 92 Huge thanks to Scott Barber for taking the time to speak to us mere earthlings, our non-Antarcticans, about his film called This Is Guar. That was a lot of fun. I hope that you people out there enjoyed it. You earthlings, those of you that didn't get swallowed up or have your heads chopped off by the members of the band, we'll put on the Facebook page any further information that we find out as we find it out when the physical media is available, when the streaming is available, the VOD, because this is a film you absolutely need to see. But in the meantime, there is so much of Gua's own film productions that are available on YouTube. Skullhead Face, their animation with Weird Al Yankovic, which we didn't actually get to speak about in that interview uh, more's the pity but it's very very funny also thanks very much to uh, you Jason for being a part of this do you do any podcasts is there anything out there that people should be able to follow right now I'm just an average Joe but I've been uh, working on scripts for film for a long time haven't made anything yet and uh, my kids are trying to talk me into being a YouTuber because of all my thousands and millions of movies that I've watched and we'll see what happens in the next year or so I'm, I'm thinking about diving in I'm not sure yet I definitely encourage that there's so 
many people out there doing it. And if you've got even a, a fraction of the knowledge that you do about Guar on film in general, I'd be watching that. So we'd love to see you do that. And I'm sure Tim and Bernie will agree that we'd love to keep an open door policy if we're doing another film. Absolutely. Anytime, that, Andrew. That you want to talk about any other music related films, we'd love to have you back. I'll see if I can dig up some info about this uh, Halex for you and see if you guys are interested. Mm, yep, absolutely. Mm-hmm. That's, all right. So let's talk about next month's episode of See Here. It's another interview. We've got interviews over the next two months. So how diverse is See Here, Tim? So this month we talk about a metal band. Next month we're going to be talking about free jazz. And I'm still working on, fingers crossed that for January, we'll be having a film about a pair of classic country songwriters. So a great story is a great story. Uh, yep. So next month, we'll be speaking with a director. His name is Tom Sergal, and he's also a jazz drummer. And he's just going to release a new film called Fire Music, the story of free jazz. So there'll be information in this film about people like Ornette Coleman, Albert Ayler, John Coltrane, and a guy who I know you're madly in love with, Sun Ra. So, Absolutely. So um, I'm so looking forward to watching this film and talking with Tom about free jazz. Admittedly, that stuff jazz is not necessarily for everyone but it's a fascinating story and there's so much great music in that so um, yeah looking forward to hear about Tom's background with free jazz and how he came to make this movie really looking forward to that uh, if you want to get in contact with us email us at seeherepodcast at gmail.com uh, you can join the Facebook group at facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash seeherepodcast I never seem to remember the details for the Instagram but I'm sure if you look up see here then uh, you'll find it we'll get Bernie to put some guar pictures in that ones that won't get the account deleted so no photos of the uh, cuttlefish of cthulhu but uh something else that's more family friendly and apart from that just please be nice to each other don't go spraying blood on each other unless it's fake blood i don't know um and be nice to each other and we'll see you for next month's episode of see here and throw yourselves into the world maggot It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. 
Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that fantasy points has to offer. That's fantasypoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. Fantasypoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 